Welcome to a new Björkness podcast. Forecasting sea ice. Vital for shipping and for the safety of the men and women who sail in the Arctic. But how do you improve forecasts of such a remote location? I'm Stephen Outen, here as always with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Good day. Remote sensing and satellites allow us to estimate the current state of Arctic sea ice, but it requires a lot of analysis and a lot of expertise to go from these estimates to a reliable operational forecast that ships' crews can use to plan safe routes through open water. We're joined today by Anton Korosov, a senior researcher at the Nansen Centre and expert on remote sensing of sea ice who is working on improving sea ice forecasts. Anton, welcome to the podcast. Hello. So let's start with just what actually is the problem. Why is it difficult for ships to sail through regions with sea ice? Sea ice uh, can be dangerous for ships um, because they can uh, crash into this ice and then uh, get a hole in the hull and sink eventually. Of course, it's uh, less dangerous with the thin ice which is just uh, forming, uh, but uh, with the uh, thick ice, it is more dangerous. And uh, ice uh, in the Arctic is never steady. It is always drifting uh, under influence uh, of uh, winds and ocean. So we cannot uh, say that uh, um, ice will be in one place all the time. We have to make uh, good observational systems and uh, forecasting systems to tell uh, where is it going to be tomorrow and the day after tomorrow so that the ships uh, can sail safely. Now, of course, people here in Bergen are used to seeing ice in wintertime, uh, frozen lakes or streams or such like. But a ship that's 10,000 tonnes of metal can't it just smash through the ice and sail wherever it wants? It depends again on the ice conditions. If the ice is just a few centimeters thick, it is not a problem. But it can get, uh, get up to several meters thick and uh, it can uh, reach and form uh, uh, so-called ice ridges, which are mountains of ice extending uh, hundreds of kilometers, which can be as high as uh, several uh, uh, tens of meters. Uh, or fields of rubbled ice, where we see uh, uh, these mountains uh, extending everywhere, and uh, it is a rough, uh, terrible terrain. And uh, in these areas, ships can just stuck, or they can uh, break uh, even uh, quite strong uh, hulls of uh, heavy icebreakers. I suppose the Titanic is probably the most famous example of what happens when metal meets ice. Well, uh, the only difference was that it was not, strictly speaking, sea ice. It was an iceberg which uh, carved uh, from a glacier in Greenland. And then it was dragged uh, by the ocean currents that far south. Because Titanic was not uh, in the Arctic, it was uh, traveling to uh, US or from US. Uh, but uh, yes, um, same thing can happen if you are traveling uh, with... Uh, unprepared boat uh, further north. So we can observe sea ice from satellites. What sort of instruments are used for this? There are many of them. Uh, first of all, or the easiest maybe to uh, understand how they're working, are visible instruments. Uh, 
It is similar to your camera on your phone, but uh, which is attached uh, to a satellite uh, flying around the Earth. Uh, it looks uh, down uh, in the visible range and uh, looks uh, at ice uh, with uh, quite high resolution and it can uh, show where the ice is and uh, even where the ridges are or cracks uh, in the ice are but when we have clouds or when we have uh, polar night or when we have uh, uh, ordinary night we cannot see that so we have to use more sophisticated um, instruments uh, which are working uh, in the microwave range of the spectrum similar to the <laughs> microwave oven uh, and then uh, these sensors are split into active and passive mm, and we are probably more interested in active sensor and it's actually quite uh, fantastic uh, technology there is a radar mm, similar to a radar that is used to measure the speed of your car but then this radar sends a signal uh, towards the earth uh, surface and uh, records the reflected signal if the earth uh, if the surface is flat uh, then the signal is very low, but if the surface is rough, for example ice or uh, wavy ocean, then the signal is stronger. And uh, this instrument operates both in day and night, because microwave radiation penetrates uh, uh, the atmosphere at the same uh, rate, and it can work uh, during bad weather with uh, cloudy conditions, because this uh, microwave pulse goes through the clouds. But uh, this gives you some sort of electromagnetic signal that you send out, and when it comes back, you get the backscatter from this, and you register this. But there are, in fact, more advanced instruments, such as the synthetic aperture radar. Yes, uh, so um, the synthetic aperture radar, the main instrument, is, is still a, a radar. Scattering uh, of the signal, uh, the antenna of this radar has to be... Uh, enormously large uh, to gain high spatial resolution on Earth's surface. And in order to mimic a very large antenna, engineers developed a synthetic uh, antenna. And that's why it is called the synthetic aperture radar. The satellite is flying and uh, sending several uh, pulses and then uh, collects uh, these pulses uh, as long as it flies and um, all the time that uh, it takes satellite to collect uh, one pulse uh, several times is converted to the size of the antenna. When you do this, you're not getting a visual image, you're getting um, just this sort of reflected electromagnetic pulse. So that's sort of the raw information that comes back to the satellite. That's a long way from being anything usable. So how would you process that? There are several uh, pre-processing and uh, processing steps uh, that we have to undertake to convert it into something useful. Um, and uh, in addition of uh, that signal being just uh, electromagnetic uh, uh, wave uh, converted to a voltage, uh, there are also some uh, disturbances uh, from the antenna, uh, like uh, so-called thermal noise, uh, which affects uh, the signal and which has to be removed. The European Space Agency, which uh, operates uh, these satellites that we use, namely Sentinel-1 satellite, uh, typically provides uh, some uh, extra 
data or so-called auxiliary data and algorithms to remove this uh, thermal noise but uh, until recently they were not very efficient so we have to uh, we had to develop our own algorithm uh, to pre-process the satellite data and to correct for this noise and then um, uh, the signal itself uh, is ambiguous we can have a high let's say brightness of the pixels both uh, over sea ice and uh, op over open ocean which is uh, roughened uh, by uh, wind uh, so it is not the signal itself but the texture of the image uh, which matters uh, the most uh, for ice type detection and uh, characterization and here we can uh, use computer vision algorithms that are developed uh, uh, widely and widely used uh, for image processing uh, for surveillance uh, uh, camera uh, data processing uh, we can use it for our purpose. So the first step of the process then seems to be taking the raw data and cleaning it up. Uh, you get this data from, for example, ESA or some receiving station, um, and there's pre-processing to sort of do the initial cleanup of this signal. You mentioned that you've actually developed a better algorithm for cleaning this up than ESA uses. Yes, uh, we have developed uh, a series of algorithms. In fact, uh, some uh, under contract uh, with the European Space Agency and um, uh, the knowledge that we obtained uh, while building this algorithm was used to improve their own uh, ground uh, processing. So now the data that anyone can download uh, is of better quality due to these projects. So, in actual fact, this is quite a good relationship. ESA is providing this data to the scientists, and the scientists are actually improving the, how to analyze this data and clean up this data, and that goes back to ESA, which means all of their data is just slightly better. Yes, it's a positive feedback, in a way. <laughs> so, that's cleaning up the data. You take out this thermal noise from the antenna. Um, that doesn't tell you what sea ice is. All you've then got is still raw data from the satellite, but very clean. So there's then the next step of trying to convert this into some sort of relevance to sea ice. Yes, exactly. And that's uh, where the uh, texture is uh, relevant. So as I said, uh, we can have either uh, dark or bright pixels both uh, over uh, sea ice and water. And... Um, but the texture of the image uh, is quite important. Previously, we used uh, methods uh, known as uh, Haralik texture features uh, to analyze uh, the texture of the image. Uh, but uh, recently, we uh, switched uh, to a deep learning technique, and uh, namely convolutional neural networks uh, to analyze input data. You probably heard uh, about deep fakes, when a person can uh, replace uh, a face in a video with his own face and this is using uh, deep learning. We use the same technique but to analyze SAR data and to retrieve uh, CIS concentration and type. So we've talked about machine learning uh, previously on the podcasts and people have talked about sort of uh, random forests and these sort of approaches but the deep learning is actually a sort of more advanced than the random forest approach. It is more advanced and it combines not only classification tasks, as deep learning does, uh, 
but also a texture calculation task, which we actually had to do before the random forest. So now texture features and random forest are replaced by a convolutional neural network. So you build these algorithms and they take in the um, data from the satellite that's already been cleaned. And what sort of values can these actually produce? What can this tell you about sea ice? These values are taken from uh, so-called ice charts. These ice charts are drawn uh, by ice experts uh, in the ice uh, services, for example, by a meteorological uh, institute of Norway or uh, Denmark. And these are including uh, information about uh, sea ice concentration, how much ice uh, per unit area, or ice uh, stage of development. Is it just a young, very thin uh, ice which is easy to break by a ship, or is it uh, older uh, ice uh, which is dangerous, or is it really thick ice with many ridges that is uh, hard to navigate even for an icebreaker? So this is giving you different ice types? Yes, and uh, we are now extending it also to derive uh, different ice forms. Is it just um, uh, a single flow of ice uh, of very large size, or is it more uh, smaller flows, uh, so-called uh, pancake ice, with uh, flows of uh, 20, 30 meters, or something in between? Uh, the satellite information can also give you other parameters like uh, sea ice concentration, just how much sea ice there is in any particular area. Um, can it also give you things about how the sea ice is moving? Because you mentioned this is a problem for shipping. Yes, and for that we also developed an algorithm. It looks at uh, two images uh, taken one after another after some time and uh, compares them and identifies uh, similar features of uh, on these images. And again, we use uh, algorithms for computer vision that are developed and widely used for other things like motion detection on surveillance camera or speed detection. But we apply that for detecting ice motion, where the ice has moved, where it has deformed and uh, where it has broken up, uh, where is the ridge opening or where is the or lead opening. So uh, this is all information that would be invaluable if you're actually on a ship and in, you're moving around and in 12 hours or in a 24 hours you're going to be in a particular location that might have sea ice there at the moment. You could actually say something about how this is going to change going into the future if you know where the openings are moving. Yes, if you know where the openings are moving. But looking only at observations, we cannot tell that. Wind may change and the ice may drift into other direction and openings may close. So that's where we need to do data simulation or that's where we need to tell the model. Okay, here we observe the ice, here we observe the opening and the model will tell us where is it going to be tomorrow. So this is now moving across. You actually need to take the satellite data and take it from just the observation from the satellite, even after your algorithm, and actually feed it into some sort of model and get the model to work out where it's going to go and how it will evolve over time. Yes, uh, this uh, serves uh, different uh, timescales uh, of uh, ship planning. Uh, observations are now at now time can be used for planning of... Uh, for tactical planning in uh, in the horizon of a few hours, but then the situation may change. And we at the Nansen Center develop uh, ocean models and uh, sea ice models 
that can predict motion of ocean and sea ice on top and also uh, correctly predict um, how the ice will break up uh, or ridge. So, you take the raw satellite data, you clean it with algorithms you've developed, you convert this into sea ice properties with algorithms you've developed, and you assimilate this through methods you've developed into um, the models. And then the models let you forecast future sea ice, how it's going to change and evolve over a day or a week or something like this. How reliable are the forecasts? Very reliable. You should use them right now. Uh, this is, of course, uh, a joke. Uh, there are uncertainties uh, associated uh, with uh, forecasts, uh, and uh, we constantly evaluate uh, the quality of the forecast. Uh, for example, uh, regarding ice edge, the accuracy uh, is that uh, even after a week of forecast, we know approximately uh, the ice edge position, uh, within um, uh, several tens of kilometers, uh, which is very good uh, for planning uh, the operations. With regard to concentration and thickness, uh, we also have these estimations and we provide them uh, with the forecasts uh, through the marine services. This is the Copernicus? Yes, the Copernicus Marine Services. So, looking to the future then, if we looked at, say, the next five to ten years, how will this work develop? What would you like to see happen? Um, well, uh, what I probably would not like to happen is that, uh, but it will, that the ice will become thinner and uh, it will change its behavior so that uh, there will be more open water and inevitably traffic will increase. That uh, would uh, require more uh, robust forecasts, more accurate forecasts, uh, because with uh, more traffic we will see more captains, less qualified for operating in the Arctic, maybe more autonomous uh, ships operating there, which will require really uh, automated procedures to navigate. And there our forecasts um, can help a lot. It will be like uh, uh, Google uh, Maps uh, for Arctic, uh, from uh, point A to point B, what is the best route? So this is your plan, this is what you're working towards? Yes. Okay. We're coming to the end of our podcast today. We've been talking to Anton Kodosov about new developments in sea ice forecasting. Anton, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, it was my pleasure. I'm Stephen Alton, here with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Thank you for listening. Thanking you once again for tuning in to another Bjorknes podcast. Now been listening to a podcast from the Bergner Center for Climate Research. The center is a collaboration between the University of Bergen, the Region Research Center North, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and the Institute of Marine Research IML. The music is from Lee Rosevier, Arcade Montage, BY 3.0. The recording was done at URB Larixlaben at Media City Bergen. This podcast was produced by me, Inger Pilskog, Associate Professor at Western Norway University of Applied Sciences.